Okay, if you would, please turn to 1 Samuel, book of 1 Samuel. After the first five books of Moses, you come to Joshua, Judges, Ruth, and then 1 Samuel. I'll be reading chapter 8, verses 4 through 7. 1 Samuel 8, verses 4 through 7. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us, like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. And so as we enter into contemplating the kings of Israel in God's redemptive history. What I want to say first is this. It's going somewhere with my application in what we're going to see this morning. And so here's my message. As you look back down the corridors of your life in the past, where you turned right, instead of left, or a thousand other things that have happened to you or decisions you made, my question is, do you have regrets? Did you have regrets where that regret becomes overwhelming to you in order to debilitate you where you're at today? Have you made choices? Have you made bad Choices that have led to your present circumstances in your life right now. Here's my admonition to you, to one degree or another, that that is your experience. Stop it. Stop the regret and trust the Lord. Or stop it by trusting the Lord even in all that has happened to you and your own sin that has wrought this upon you. Stop it. The message of Jesus is even your missteps, your small sins, your gigantic sins, all of them can and will be turned into good for you if you love the Lord Jesus, if you are in Christ. Let's pray. So, Father, I ask you to help me encourage and say that again and again through our texts this morning. Help us, Father. Help us. 
all the more in the midst of life which is suffering to say blessed is he blessed is our king blessed is our sovereign one blessed is this steadfast love for me through jesus christ forever amen all right so this morning as we do contemplate the kingdom of Israel, which will lead to the, the kingdom of God, to kings and thrones. This is so crucial to understand in order to understand the Bible, to understand the gospel, to understand your New Testament, to understand redemptive history and the whole biblical framework of what God is doing. In other words, what's happening in the Old Testament with kings and lineage, thrones, it will eventually lead to wise men from the east coming into Judah and asking the question, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? The angel Gabriel said to Mary, Jesus' mother, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to Him the throne of His Father, King David. And your baby Mary will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of His kingdom, there will be no end. And Jesus came on the scene preaching the kingdom of God, of which He was the King. On that original Palm Sunday, the people cried out, Blessed is the King! who comes in the name of the Lord. And before Pilate, Jesus admits, I am a king. And above His head on the cross, the words were written, this is Jesus, the king. Even though they meant it mock as a mockery. Oh, God is sovereign. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. And Paul says that Jesus must reign. Reign as king until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And redemptive history ends with these words about Jesus. He is Lord of lords and King of kings. And the very first Christian sermon ever preached on the day of Pentecost by Peter, he says this, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, the second king of Israel, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day, being therefore a prophet, that is David, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne 
David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. Oh, the kingdom and kings and sovereignty and reigning throughout the Old Testament into the new is so crucial to grasp what the Christ event is really all about. And so this is week 22 in our series, God's Purpose in Redemptive History. And this journey through biblical history, it leads us this morning to ask then this question. How did this line of kings now within Israel, how did it get its start? What's its origin? So in a nutshell, God brought Israel out of Egypt into 40 years of wilderness wandering and finally over the Jordan River into the land of Canaan in order to conquer those people and to possess the land as Joshua, their leader. And then Joshua gets old and dies along with his generation. And then the next thing we read about what's happening in the history of Israel is when you flip out of the book of Joshua into the next book called Judges, these words. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals, the false gods of the land. And the book of Judges then begins probably around the year 1375 B.C., before Christ. And it covers almost a period of 300 years through the book of Judges. And the book is about a roller coaster ride of Israel, rebelling against the Lord. God's judgment comes using other people, and they cry out to the Lord, Save us. The Lord has pity. He saves them, and great, and it goes good for 32 years, and then back down to rebellion against the Lord. The, the whole book of Judges is summed up in Judges chapter 2. Verses 16 to 19. Then the Lord raised up judges who served them out of the hand of the, excuse me, who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do as they did. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and He saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, Israel turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them, and bowing down to them. And the very last verse of the book of Judges reads, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And the last judge 
was a man named Samuel. He's also a prophet. And it was Samuel who was called to anoint Saul, the first king of Israel. And after Saul, David ruled. After David, his son Solomon. After Solomon, the kingdom of Israel split into two. A northern kingdom with its kings and a southern kingdom with its kings for the next 160, 70, 80 years until the rebellion filled to its full in the northern kingdom and God brought judgment by bringing the Assyrians in to take captive the northern kingdom of Israel in the year 721 B.C. And so for another 135 or so years, eventually the same rebellion filled to its full and God used His hand called the Babylonians to come in and take captive Judah, the southern kingdom, in the year 586 B.C. You get the book of Daniel off in captivity. And then slowly, some of the Jews are allowed to come back into the land and into Jerusalem and rebuild the temple, not like the temple that was before, and rebuild the walls. And, and you got some prophets of the Lord speaking to the people for the next hundred years. And then 430 B.C., God goes silent through prophets. The end of your Old Testament. There it is in a nutshell. What I want to do mainly now is go back. I want to go back to... 1 Samuel chapter 12. And we're going to look at the inauguration. Not in Washington, but this was the inauguration in Gilgal. And the speaker is Samuel, the prophet, the judge, anointing the first king of Israel, King Saul, before all the people. And in this speech, we'll see there in verses 10 and 11, Samuel rehearses the Israel of the people of Israel, saying, and about their fathers, they cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and have served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. But now deliver us out of the hand of our enemies that we may serve you. And the Lord sent you Gideon and Barak and Jephthah and Samuel and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side, and you lived in safety. And so that's their pattern for the next 300 years. Safety, rebellion, up and down. And Samuel rehearses it. And then he gets to verse 12, where is the final turning point in the history of Israel's leadership. Samuel says, and when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, No! 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 But a king shall reign over us. That's what you said to me when the Lord your God was your king. Why'd they say no? They said no to what? That text is clear. 
the Lord your God was your king. And you said, no. We want another king to reign over us. That's the point. You want to see it really clearly? Turn back to chapter 8 of 1 Samuel. In verses 5 to 7, the people say, Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations, they have them. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For Samuel, they have not rejected you but they have rejected me from being king over them. So when Israel said, they're in chapter 12, and Samuel lets them know, this is what you said to me. You said, no, but a king shall rule, reign over us. They were saying no to God as their king. No to dependence on God. He will lead. He will raise up judges when he needs to lead armies to fight the enemy and give you the victory. They said to that, no. They were saying no to being unlike the world. Appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations have. And that was a great sin. It was evil, according to Samuel in verse 17 of chapter 12. Remember, it's harvest time. That means it's not supposed to rain in harvest time. And Samuel says to them on Inauguration Day, Is it not wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord that He may send thunder and rain, and you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking for yourselves a king. And then in verse 19, the people freak out and admit they're wrong. And all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die. For we have added to all our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. And so, God gave them a king. And this began the history of the kingdom within Israel. That's a precarious beginning. And in the weeks to come, we're going to delve into the kings and the 
kingdom ideas and the prophecy that God gave to one of the kings, David, that had eternal, everlasting ramifications of mercy and goodness. We're going to deal with all that in the weeks to come. But this is as far as I'm going this morning. This crazy beginning. Israel, we will see, there were some good kings. David. Josiah. Actually, those two names we have named our children after, their middle names, these good kings. There's a king, not just good, perfectly good, that will come through that line named Jesus. But nevertheless, the kingly line in which they reigned and which Jesus will reign had a sinful origin. I think there's lessons in that. The first, and we look at that and say, if that's got such an evil origin, how could anything good come out of it? God, the sovereign one, that's the answer. But one thing we look at first is Israel and learn something about what not to do. Because we learn here that not just what you ask for or things you choose to do. Oh, God didn't forbid this. But the way you ask and the motive for why you ask. You see, I doubt that having a king was in and of itself evil. In other words, if they said, this is awesome, God, whatever you want, but it just seems like, you know, if we organized ourselves a little bit better and we are for Yahweh, we love you, Almighty God, then a king could have been used as an agent to unite Godwardness in the nation of Israel. A king would have provided that spiritual unity. But as what we read and the way it's put, it seems to be in the way in which they asked it. No! We want to be like all the other nations. We don't want God to rule over us. We want the king. And that was what was behind it that caused it to be evil and to bring horrific experiences out of it. So I think that would teach us Christians to watch statements like, that's not wrong. I'm free to do this and that or to have that. The Bible doesn't say anything about that being wrong. Therefore, just go and do. 
Why do I say to just say it that way is dangerous? Paul was clear. All things may be lawful, but not all things are profitable. We may be technically right that that thing in and of itself is not sinful, but it could be sin for you because the way in which you do it, the way in which you approach it, the way in which you ask for it. It may be okay depending on your heart towards God. Is Bible teaching evil? So then it's always good for everybody at any time to teach Bible. It's great. Really? You don't think there is a kind of fear that anyone who would teach the Bible ought to approach it? Knowing that we shall incur a much greater judgment? Why, why would that be? Because though Bible teaching is not definitionally evil in and of itself, for this person, it may be the grace of the Lord and an evidence that he or she is walking with the Lord. For another person, it may be the evidence of rebellion and arrogance against the Lord. Marriage is good. God created it. Male and female, he created them. Therefore, just marry. Really? Just, just marry without ever checking where your heart is towards God in choosing that mate? Marriage could be a wonderful sign of, 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 the, of the walk with Jesus and a repentant life filled with the Holy Spirit, and it could be a sign of rebellion in the heart. People are starving in Haiti. It's good to feed them. And they ought to be fed. One person can feed them, and it is the fruit of the spirit of love in their heart. Another person can do it because somehow they're trying to work out getting brownie points in case there really is a God, and I die, and I want to make sure I'm a good person. We can go on and on. Prayer. You don't want to say anything bad about prayer, do you? You mean the way in which you might approach prayer could be evil? Yes. Jesus warned about it. He said, don't be like these Pharisees in the way they pray. So how we approach things, particularly those which are not forbidden, is crucial in our walk. Watch our hearts. That's the first thing. We learn from our text and about Israel saying, no, because what's in our heart is we don't want God. We don't want Him. I don't want Him ruling over this, that, and the other. The second lesson from what we have seen this morning and the way God acted and what He's doing in redemptive history in this 
strange beginning of the kings within Israel is that no matter what is transpiring within human history, even the sin of his people, Israel, in asking for a king, God's ultimate purposes cannot, are not, and will never be hindered. In some sovereign, mysterious way, he is behind even the beginning of the kingship within Israel. His plans, his purpose, and slash purposes will be fulfilled even by means of sin. Way back in Deuteronomy, a few hundred years early in chapter 17, the book of Deuteronomy makes it very clear that when you get into the land, there's going to come a time you're going to ask for a king, and I'm going to say, okay, you're going to get the king, and this is how you do it. In other words, so we see their sin, and what we read, God is not somehow stunned that they want a king. He knows the beginning from the end. In a sense, therefore, not only does he know it, he planned for the establishment of the kingdom within Israel and brought it about. I know, but you say, but it came about through evil. It came about through sin. Yes. It's just like he planned for the crucifixion of his son before he ever created anything. He preordained it to happen through sin. It happened because sinners sinned. And put him there like Judas and Pilate and the Sanhedrin. The book of Genesis ends, of course. Joseph says those words, right? His brothers hated his guts. That was not good. That's, that was jealousy, which is sinful. And their action, throwing him into a pit, wanting to kill him, but oh, we'll sell him into slavery instead. It was sinful, and Joseph doesn't deny that. But when it's all said and done decades later, Joseph is second in command of Egypt and is reunited with his brothers, and he forgives them. He's clear on the truth. What you did to me, you meant it for evil. That got me here. And God meant this exact same thing for good. God planned for that evil. And through it, he brought salvation to Israel to stay alive. God planned 
for the rebellion of his people Israel to say to Samuel, no! We don't want God to reign over us. We want a king like the other nations. God planned it, planned it, planned it. And through it, he brought the king of Israel to reign forever. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Any questions? Okay, so I'm going to do what? I'm going to have the questions be posed and I'm going to let someone else come in and answer some of these things. It has been so helpful to me on this issue because the question arises, are you saying God is the author of sin? Okay. So I'm bringing in Pastor John Nathan Edwards from the 1700s. And he writes, If by the author of sin be meant the sinner the agent or the actor of sin, or the, in other words, the doer of a wicked thing, oh no, if that's what you mean, then it would be a reproach and blasphemy to suppose God to be the author of sin in that way. In this sense, Edward says, I utterly deny God to be the author of sin. And then he goes on to argue that willing for God to will that sin be or to exist is not the same thing as sinning. God does not commit sin in sovereignly willing that sin come into being. He says it this way, Edwards, quote, God is the permitter of sin, and at the same time he is a disposer of the state of events in such a manner for wise, holy, and most excellent goals and purposes that this sin, if it be permitted, will certainly tend toward or accomplish. So in other words, God wills, in one sense, things he hates. In another sense, Edward says it this way, quote, God may hate a thing as it is in itself and considered simply as evil, and yet it may be His will it should come to pass, considering all consequences of it. God doesn't will sin as sin or for the sake of anything evil, 
even though it be his pleasure so to order things that he permitting sin will come to pass for the sake of the great good that by his disposal shall be the consequence of it. His willing to order things so that evil should come to pass for the sake of the contrary good is no argument that God doesn't hate evil as evil. And if so, then it is no reason why he may not reasonably forbid evil as evil and punish it as such. So yes, evil is evil because of the intent of Judas's heart. He is culpable for his sin. And it is right for God to punish the evil. God brought about the greatest act unto the greatest goal possible in all creation. The crucifixion of His Son through the hands of sinful men. See, to grasp that, to ponder that dynamic, you'll be able to open your Bible and start to really understand a lot of things. If you don't, I don't know, because it was to be so befuddled over so many things in the early part of my Christian life. That can't mean what it says. No, we know it can't mean that. If you start to grasp, God is not you, He's God. He's sovereign. He's eternal. He is the essence of goodness and being and truth and justice and love and everything else. And that God can actually be more complex than you and will that something be in one sense that He actually hates justly and purely in another sense. Then you'll be able to read the whole Bible and not just let it fly over your head. See, this fundamental truth helps us explain so many perplexing things that we just read if you're honest with the Scripture. God forbids people to hate His people Israel. And then the text in Scripture is clear. He ordains that those people hate His people, Israel. Quote, God turned their hearts to hate His people. God hardens Pharaoh's heart and then tells him, let my people go then hardens his heart so he won't do what he tells him to do.
God makes it very clear that it is sin for David to take a military census of his people. And then God ordains that he does it. It is sin for Israel in the way they wanted a king. It was evil according to the Bible. Yep. And ultimately, God ordained it in order to set his eternal son in his incarnation on the throne of the lineage of David to reign forever. I hope you find that reality to be the deepest comfort in your life. Because life is suffering. It's short. It's filled with joys. And it's filled with pain. When his children grasp this, is there any possible deeper comfort? Whether it's a drunk driver flying through a red light out of your control, hurricane, cancer, whether it's your own sin that have brought consequences for the rest of your mortal life, none of it is ultimately out of God's control. And so, Paul meant it when he said to Christians, God causes everything, all things to work together for good to those who love him, to those who are called according to his purpose. So as I began the sermon, you look back down the corridors of your life, should I have taken X, Y, or Z? You're where you're at because God sovereignly puts you here. Now look forward down the hallway and continue to follow him. How do you live your life? In panic? What do I do? Do I marry her? Do I marry him? Do I go to school here? Should I get this degree? Should I move to this city? Which church should I go to? Should I wear these clothes? Should I not wear those clothes? Uh, 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 you don't. You do this. You love the Lord today. So we heard last week in Hebrews, today, 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 if you hear his voice, you love the Lord. You practice the spiritual disciplines, the graces that God has given, church membership, church fellowship, your Bible, your reading, praying, communing. Walk with the Lord and then do whatever you want. 
Which brings me to the third lesson. And that is this. If the life situation that you find yourself in to be irreversible, and it was your sin that brought it about, your Father in heaven, your Lord Jesus, does not want you to be paralyzed by that. Satan does. The enemy and the accuser does. He wants you to be utterly free. So that you can even maybe say as Paul would one day, who I do picture Paul as a man who did not get engulfed in regret. of who he was and the horrific things he did in his sin. But he would say later, Timothy, I see what God was sovereignly doing. He saved me so people can look at me, the chief of sinners, and have hope. 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 Don't be paralyzed with guilt and despair. Verse 19, 1 Samuel 12. Samuel, here's the people. All the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die, for we have added to all of our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. Okay. This is how we walk. That's how we deal with our sin. Every day, big and small, be humbled by it. Be humbled deeply by your sin and turn to the Lord. Next verse, Samuel responds this way. And Samuel said to the people, do not be afraid. You have done all this evil, yes. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. Okay. Yes, gotcha, I will. Now serve the Lord. Walk with the Lord. There is no biblical grounds to give up on the grace and the mercy of God. For anyone in this room to ever say now or sometime in the future, I'm too far gone. My sin is too huge and too great for Jesus to bear. Don't ever listen to the voice of Satan on that. Don't ever let him paralyze you with guilt and depression 
for your Savior bore your guilt. Don't ever let that keep you from drawing near to God with a heart of faith, with a heart of repentance. Even though you sinned greatly, if you will turn from your evil way and serve the Lord with all your heart, then there is all the forgiveness and the cleansing in the world that you need in Jesus. And so here's the final point then of all this, what we're going to see. If what I just encouraged us with is true, what's it based on? Is it based on your feeling? Is it based on you judging yourself by your brother, or your sister, or those other persons? Oh yeah, I feel good about myself now. I guess I'm okay with God. What is this based on according to Samuel? Listen to what Samuel says to the sinners, the disobedient people. And what you're going to hear is that the foundation that this mercy for our sins being washed away as we walk in this life, it is the same basis and foundation we have seen through the last 22 weeks of this series. Verse 22. Samuel says, For the Lord will not forsake His people. Why? For His great name's sake. Because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. The basis always of God's grace is the love he has for his glory, for his great name. And so for every one of us sinners, who have come to the cross of Jesus Christ. The ground of mercy throughout our lives to our last breath is God's absolute unswerving. He cannot deny Himself, Paul says, and He never will. It is His absolute commitment to preserve and to display his glory. The Father's message to all of those who have come to Him through His Son, Jesus Christ, is clear. We should hear it every day in our quiet time. Fear not. Fear not, repentant Sinners, Jesus-loving children of mine, 
Fear not, you who look for hope, because I love my name, and I will honor my name, and I will honor and love all those people who lean on my name. So no wonder the Apostle John, who loved his friend Jesus so much, no wonder decades later, after he saw his Savior be crucified, he writes to the church these words in his first epistle. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. Oh, how sweet. So let us be a people who fight into that rest and fight to cloak ourselves in the person of Christ, in the name of Jesus, and the cross and the justification it represents. And he, he has promised, he will guard you forever. Let's pray. Amen. Hallelujah. Father, you are so good. Your mercy is everlasting. Oh, how you, you had the hearts of your people and your psalmists say it over and over and over and over again. For you knew that you had predestined your son to come and to purchase that merciful, loving kindness for those who you're making yours forever. It is good. It is sweet. Oh, may we this week find such joy in the sobriety of leading up to the passion of our Savior. Oh, do it. Holy Father, do it in us sinners to the glory of your name. Amen. Let us stand.